Hello, everyone. It's Matthew DeMello, your host of The Fiona Show, Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And we're here today with a juicy episode. Our client guest today, Doug Darling. Don't you just love his name? Seems like he belongs in a dramatic romance novel more than in the harsh world of international tax. Anyway, over the years, Doug has seen just about every kind of transfer pricing situation there is. Today, he's going to talk to us about some of the more interesting ones. Armed with a law degree and a master's in tax law, Doug started his career in transfer pricing back in 2007 when things were soon to heat up in the transfer pricing world. As a transfer pricing manager at CNH Industrial, a global manufacturer and distributor of agricultural and construction equipment, he conducted transfer pricing analyses, prepared documentation, and established intercompany transfer prices and, when needed, adjustments. At Stryker Corporation, a global manufacturer and distributor of medical devices, he built on those managers duties and led the company in compliance with BEPS Action 13. He modified documentation to include country-specific local and master files, as well as developed Stryker's country-by-country reporting template. At Deloitte, he set up transfer pricing teams in various offices and focused on IP and strategic transfer pricing planning. As part of forensic audits, he reviewed clients' documentation and assessed them for overall tax risk. Now he's back in-house at KCI, a subsidiary of Acelity, which is leading the world in terms of advanced wound care products and innovation. Recently, KCI was acquired by 3M as a part of 3M's medical solutions division. Incidentally, over the summer, Fast Company magazine named 3M one of the 50 best workplaces for innovators, so the match seems like a great fit. But more on him, KCI, and 3M in a minute. As always, you can earn CPE credits for listening to this episode. Here's how it works. Listen for two code words, which we planted in this episode, and email both of them, remember both of them, to The Fiona Show at The Fiona Show, that's one word, at xbs.ai, and we'll reply with your CPE credits. Now, I know you're anxious to hear from Doug, and we don't blame you, but first, a look at transfer pricing in the news. How are country-by-country reports working for you? (laughs) Like we even have to ask. When country-by-country reporting debuted in 2015, requiring tax authorities to share information about M&E groups with other tax authorities and making real-life tax transparency a little more transparent, the plan was to review the report's effectiveness in 2020. And now here we are. The 137 countries in the inclusive framework have launched that review, releasing a consultation document that welcomes public comments on specifics like the reporting requirements threshold, is it too low, too high, or should companies with foreign permanent establishments have to file reports? The edge of your seat question, of course, is are more disclosures necessary? Uh, Gulp, we're betting you already know the answer to that one. Any transfer pricing executive will tell you the key to great documentation is the functional or FAR analysis, i.e. explaining an M&E group's functions, assets, and risks. Nailing that piece of the puzzle not only represents a solid story for tax authorities, but the rest of the report magically falls into place. Get it wrong, however, and you're in trouble. Just ask Puma Nordic AB, a wholly owned Swedish subsidiary of the German parent Puma SE, which in December was slapped with a 10 million euro transfer pricing adjustment by the Swedish tax authority. 
authorities. The issue, which company is assuming the appropriate risk? Here's how it went down. The Swedish subsidiary paid the German parent for products, which it would resell locally in a license fee for the use of the brand name Puma. Sounds simple enough, but from 2015 to 2017, this transfer pricing model resulted in continuous losses for the Swedish company. An obvious red flag, don't make that like a flare gun for tax authorities. As it turned out, the Swedish subsidiary had assumed market and product risks, even though it had no say in decision making. The tax authorities determined that the Nordic company should be a mere distributor since it has no say in complex or strategic functions, and therefore it should assume limited risks, which throws the whole transfer pricing model out of whack and definitely out of arm's length range. The Swedish tax authorities redid the comparability study, applying the transactional net margin method and adjusted the Nordic company to the lower quartile range resulting in that 10 million euros oh in a surcharge for reporting false information in the first place if questionable intergroup financial transactions are keeping you up at night you can finally relax though in the throes of constant back and forths over pillar one and pillar two and basically rewriting global taxation as we know it the heroes at the OECD still managed to publish transfer pricing guidance on financial transactions helping countless MNEs to navigate action four and actions eight through ten of the action plan on base erosion and profit shifting the new guidance clears up gray areas on how to apply the arm's length principle to interest company loans, cash pooling, and financial guarantees, all on the hit list for tax authorities. And it reminds you to consider the big picture in financial analyses, contractual terms, economic circumstances, and business strategies. So with all this financial transfer pricing handholding, there's no need to lose any more sleep over intracompany treasury transactions. You'll want to spend those late night hours worrying over pillar one and pillar two instead. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp so doug you have a long history in transfer pricing how did you get started well i think like a lot of transfer pricing professionals transfer pricing found me more than anything personally i'd, I'd always thought i'd be interested in wanting to pursue an international law, tax law area, and this certainly has an element of that. But more specifically, I was on a, an engagement, uh, an assignment not related to transfer pricing at Case New Holland in Chicago and Wisconsin. And on that engagement was not transfer pricing, it was another tax-related matter. I was doing some consulting, and they asked me, they were 
forming their own internal transfer pricing team and asked me if I'd like to join it. And I jumped at the chance. I knew the basics of transfer pricing and it interested me. But given this opportunity, I jumped at the chance and I've just kind of run with it ever since and have done exclusively that. That's been about 13 years now. Yeah, 13 years doesn't sound like 2007. Maybe that that's just my uh, warped existence. But what changes would you say you have observed since you started in 2007? And how has that affected your role as a transfer pricing manager? You know, I think, obviously, it's the increased scrutiny and uh, visibility that transfer pricing has, has received over that time. It's become, you know, much more of an impactful the impact of it has been much more realized by auditors and much more highlighted. So to that degree, auditors have become more sophisticated and consequently, and as a result, you know, GP professionals in-house like myself have had to, had to up our game as well. You know, so many issues that might have flown under the radar 10, 15 years ago in transfer pricing really won't today or wouldn't today. Uh, for example... You know, an auditor might not have challenged a simple TNMM transfer price transaction net margin method, as far as a method, 10 or 15 years ago, and just taken for granted. But um, and then challenged and not challenged it. But today, be more sophisticated. They might challenge it and ask you know, with a profit split, for example, considered something right. a little more sophisticated. So, so I think it's just that. Everybody, you know, with the intense scrutiny and, and some of the bad press that's even gotten, you know, in the Google and Amazon cases, it's just, you know, become much more visible. And so everybody on both sides have had to up their game. Mm, those features you're talking about have kind of coincided at least with, you know, the institutions and the institutional solutions that seem to not be going anywhere. The OECD, BEPS, you know, what we might have gone into it at the time, you know, around 2013 and 2015 being like, oh, is this going to stick around? But no one questions that, you know, they're the sheriffs in town now and that's not going to change anytime soon. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree with that. And it's, it's going to evolve but it's not going away. Before we jump into KCI, let's talk about your experience overall. You started out in-house before BEPS, worked in-house through BEPS, then worked for Deloitte as a consultant. Now you're back in-house. That is a very well-rounded experience. How did working in-house help you as a consultant? And how did working as a consultant help you as an in-house transfer pricing professional? Yeah, I think about that quite a bit myself. I think simple answer the easy answer and quick answer is it's made me a very well-rounded transfer pricing professional. But, you know, specifically, I think working in-house and starting in-house helped me understand the everyday basic foundational TP, end-to-end TP process and life cycle and how it worked, you know, especially the very practical aspects of it. I think I, I initially, I started, as I'd mentioned, in, at Case, New Holland, or CNH, really a very simple structure and TP, it just, it is, it's, it's not a lot of IP. And of course there's IP there, but it, it's, it's a very stable with agricultural equipment and construction equipment. Still very, very simple, but unique in its own way. And, and that was a good starting foundation for me because I wasn't overwhelmed at the beginning. So I think it's that day to day blocking and tackling and the practical aspects of it that helped me or, or what I learned in, in house. Yeah. So that, it also helped me, 
you know, understand the financial system that, that the companies use, because obviously when you're a consultant, and I'll get to that, you, you don't have a hand in those. You don't actually work in the HFM or the SAP and the Oracle. So you, you kind of talk at 30,000-foot level sometimes as a consultant, but being in-house helped me understand that and helped me understand the interaction between the different you know, departments and functions in a multinational enterprise so that you knew how those work within the, the total transfer pricing picture. So these things in, in particular helped me prepare me for my role as a consultant because what being a consultant did for me to make me a better team professional was the vast number of projects, simply quantity of projects that I was involved in and the wide variety simply made me a better TP professional. I saw more, I experienced more than anybody typically does in-house, you know, in three right. uh, in a three-year span. It's just simply working on five to ten projects at one time, juggling those, going, you know, on through the year and rolling on and off. Just the wide variety and the exposure was, was so beneficial to me. It also helped me become a better professional in other ways. You know, working at Deloitte, consulting, it forced me to become a better project manager, having to juggle, you know, multiple projects, work streams, and deliver both all at once. Like when you're looking at in-house transfer pricing documentation, are you, maybe due to the consulting experience, are you able to see things as a third party? Are you able to see what's missing or how a tax authority might be looking at your documentation, which is typically different than the way in-house transfer pricing professionals look at their documentation? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, having seen so many yeah. at Deloitte in reviewing documentation, I, I now have a better idea of what good documentation is or isn't and brought that back to my in-house. I mean, yeah. and I could touch upon that. But just, just the fact of having, you know, one of the things that I really enjoyed at, at Deloitte was what I called like TP forensics, where we would review a, a client, usually at the request of our own audit team, internal audit team, they would come to us and say, we review this client's documentation for conformed, you know, its obligations, other tax exposures. And so we would, we would read the documentation and basically look for errors, we would review the transactions, see if they applied an appropriate or reasonable method, test the results, see where they had tax exposures, review their benchmarks, and then we would supply a memo, you know, where we saw things and, and that would be discussed with the client. But having seen so many of that, so much of that, has made me so much better and just seeing the different kinds of approaches. Sure. It's helped me kind of focus in on what is a best practice and, and, and how an auditor is going to look at that when I put on my audit hat. That's so great. That experience was one of the most valuable things I think I took out of Deloitte, sure. honestly. In addition to different projects and variety, yes, mm -hmm. it was that, that exercise. So I do miss doing that a little bit mm -hmm. um, just because I, I, I thoroughly enjoy it, just doing that that forensic part of it so sure yeah. it keeps um, it keeps everything so different like you get to experience so many different kinds of transactions yeah and companies the transactions and companies and how to how to discuss them what not to discuss what to discuss how to you know simple things like that where i came with my own here's the way I, the documentation should be done my approach is to have a separate appendix 
that is all the details of your benchmarks, you know, business descriptions, the rejection matrix, okay. the search strategies, all the separate appendix that can be handed over or not handed over when the TP auditor asks for your documentation. You can give them the basic documentation, talk about the transactions and has the has your benchmarking results and has your tested party results and talks about all that. And they don't have to look at the uh, the details. Uh, they don't, you know, unless they really, really want to look right. at them and, and pick at them. So I'm not offering up something that isn't asked for, really. Right. Right. But that, that's just my that's just my approach. Just something I hold back. And if they want to know those details, yeah, I'll give it to them. But it just to me, it keeps things cleaner. But again, that's just a preference I picked up. Sure. Sure. Look at Deloitte. Really, really helped me, and it's a very simple, practical thing. Is I learned how consultants and services firms price things and so you know that aspect I can now take it back and I can challenge I can ask for things like you know what's your budget look like and they don't have to show it to me but it gave me an idea of what projects should reasonably cost and why and how much so I can now use that it's not a it's not a secret science anymore when I'm in-house because now what we do we are just always more and more service providers are engaging just because of the additional work so it's given me kind of that ability to see where they're coming from simple thing but I, I think if you don't see that you know how do you assess their pricing if it's fair or not right that's a huge asset for for your company now I'm unique in that I went from in-house to consulting mm-hmm most way that works is people go to consult from consulting they start in consulting then they'll go in-house sure when they're tired of the consulting (laughs) they may return to the consulting the route i took was just kind of the opposite it was upstream when i started in-house and i wanted to hone my skills went to deloitte went to consulting so that eventually i would come back in-house a better a better professional so i'm kind of unique in that way sure do you have a preference in-house or consulting I, yeah, I, in-house in a challenging role. Okay. Right. But at, because it, I do think the consulting is more challenging and I like that mental simulation. I like that challenge. And there are things I miss about consulting, mm-hmm. but so long as the in-house role, I like seeing a project from end to end. Sure. I like seeing the details and stuff. And you do that in-house, whereas consulting, you still see things a lot from a 30,000 foot level. Sure. So as long as the in-house role is challenging, then that is my preference. And tell us about KCI, the company specializes in wound care. Yeah, so, so KCI is the leader, global leader, in what is called you know, negative pressure wound therapy, essentially. There is no such thing as negative pressure. I, we still don't understand why it's called that. But if you can imagine taking a sponge and putting it in a, an incision, and then it's a vacuum. So the sponge kind of heals to the side of the wound, and then as you pull, you know, it's a vacuum, it makes that sponge, you know, suck up and it pulls the sides of the wound together slowly. Oh. So it is, it is a fantastic healing and, and area of medicine. And that KCI kind of mastered it, pioneered it. A lot of people tried to copy it. That's what we're known for. $2 billion, roughly $2 billion a year business global. We're in, you know, most all major countries somewhere somehow with a distribution or or, uh, some sort of presence so Mm -hmm. in 2019 october 2019 we were acquired by 3m the conglomerate 3m in st paul minneapolis 
3M has a medical solutions division and they do have this technology or they're working on a similar technology they have this technology but they acquired us to really bolster that and bring the global leader into that business or that niche within their medical solutions division so it's really a perfect fit and we might have covered this in in just describing the difference between you know consulting and your in-house gig now but what does your job entail outside of that i guess every aspect of transfer pricing you can think of actually we're we're only a two-person team and so we we do all of the you know the life cycle if you think of the life cycle of tp it's you do your the beginning of the year or the end of the previous year you do your budgeting and forecasting and off of that you do you set your transfer prices and then you monitor it as you go through the year, the monthly, quarterly, how whatever year your tool sets you up to do. As you get towards the end of the year, then you start looking at doing documentation from the, the previous year. So you need to run your TP documentation, you know, middle of the year, towards the end of the year. And then you continue to monitor and change transfer prices if you're able to. Some some companies aren't don't have that ability within their systems, their ERP systems, to frequently or change the transfer prices, and so they you know stay the same all year long. But if you're able to change them, you can, you maybe should, but it, that causes other problems, customs, that issues. So it's not the ideal solution. The ideal solution is accurate transfer pricing based on accurate budgeting and forecasting. As you get to the end of the year, then you start looking at your profitability for the year, and then you make transfer pricing adjustments, you know, where it's able and where you can, et cetera, et cetera, which also has issues, but it is a very common practice is that you wraps up to an end, and you're not meeting your reasonable targets for the various entities then you make transfer pricing adjustments. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> that is a lot. That is a lot. But then there, throughout the year, there are special one-off projects, you know, that we're handling and doing an acquisition and IP valuation that go on through the year. So the year is sprinkled out with those, those you know, kind of one-offs and that's is now, you know, sure. uh, made the, 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 an action item 13 has made that documentation piece of it that is usually towards the year yeah. even more, you know, even more burdensome. Sure. I was wondering, because yeah, no. you mentioned that you were acquired by 3M, I was wondering if you worked on merging the transfer pricing departments. We are, yes, and we are currently in the process okay. of doing that. And, and it's kind of unique. Usually the major acquisitions I've learned is the integration of those two is a really long, lengthy process, maybe over several years before you figure out who is going to do what from which tax department. And we were in that category of a large acquisition for them. We're their largest acquisition they've ever done. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't have really a good, necessarily a game plan for it. We're a 25 person tax department. Um, they're larger, of course. Sure. But it wasn't easy just to fold one into the other. So as of right now, we're kind of, we're running as two separate tax departments, okay. two separate transfer pricing teams as we are go through the process of integrating. So I've always been on the other side. When when I worked at Stryker, was, we did many acquisitions, and it was usually small acquisitions with the number of personnel you had involved wasn't that big, 
and you're usually bought them for the IP, you know, the intellectual property. And so they have one or two people you either brought on board or, you know, or not. Okay. Um, but being on this end, being the, the acquired entity has been unique. What has been unique about it for you? What's been unique about it for me, and especially at the beginning, although it's starting to change, because you know, it's been since October, is that the flow of information was really one way for most of the time in that they, needed, they wanted to know what we did. Okay. And we got very little visibility into what they did. I see. But but that is all changing now, and we are, you know, I just, in fact, I just got off a phone call. We had an integration meeting, and I'm going to be up at 3 a.m. next week in Minneapolis at St. Paul for a week doing just that, the integration, and learning. And they're going to now, they've opened their, their processes and such up to us. You know, here's what we do, and here's what we do, and how do we integrate the two. So sure. that was that was a challenge. Just we wanted to know what they did. But the flow of information only for the longest time only was going one way. Okay. Okay. But I think that's common. When I think about it, it was just unique for me. We may have gone over at least uh, at least a few of the jurisdictions where you have entities, but but how many countries does KCI operate in? And I'm sure that complicates things with the merger with 3M. Sure. Sure. No. Absolutely. We we have entities in roughly 35 countries jurisdictions globally. We have some operations in others, whether it's through a commissionaire or a branch. But when you talk about, you know, strictly entities, you know, we, we are probably in closer to 50 jurisdictions somehow, some sort of presence. But, you know, 35, roughly 35 different entities, largest being the United States, Ireland, UK, Canada, Australia, Japan, France, and Germany. And that's not surprising for the medical solutions or the pharmaceutical business, the life sciences, those are your media as well a little bit. We have mm-hmm. some R&D there, but those are, your, those are your heavy hitters. Those are your big jurisdictions. We cover a number of those countries quite a bit, at least on our, our news yeah. front. But from your perspective, what's going on in transfer pricing in these jurisdictions? Um, a lot of it is, not surprisingly, bet-focused, increased audits, increased scrutiny. I don't see... I don't see many other things happening in them other than that is, is you know, they, they try and fully implement their BEPS or try and apply it. But there are different unique places. Um, for example, UK, we have a very large global footprint in, in the UK with manufacturing and distribution and such. And the UK has what's called a deferred profits tax, or that- DPT. I'm with, sorry, is that the same as the diverted profits tax? <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, we call it deferred, and, and you caught me. This is the diverted profits tax. Right. Um, but, we're, but, but we're having, you know, one-off analysis done on that with consulting firms and services, as is 3M, because they also have a large UK presence. Okay. But, again, that's just a sub-niche or subclass of, of BEPS. That's mm-hmm. their own take on BEPS and then taking it to the next level. Sure. Which, which you know, I, I mentioned earlier a little briefly about how, how many other jurisdictions are going to kind of do that. I think you see them smattering here and there. But the UK, because it is such a large player mm-hmm. in the global market, it, it's, a, it's a significant it's a significant thing. And Fiona, let's clarify. What is the diverted profits tax? The diverted profits tax UK is a punitive tax minus 25%, 5% higher than the usual corporate rate that the UK introduced in 2015. Basically, the UK can apply the tax to profits that in its view, have wrongfully been diverted from the UK. 
It's commonly referred to as the Google tax, but it affects more than digital companies. What it means is we are doing more engagement of outside consultants and services firms as things like diverted profits tax. We are hiring more and more third-party consultants where we're just trying to handle the day-to-day activities. So I think, I think two to three people is about the right size for a medical technology company like ourselves. I think you get up to the, the larger corporations like a Stryker, which is, you know, is a 25 million uh, when I left, you're needing four or five people, dedicated transfer pricing professionals, which they had, to, to really keep up. And so I say we're understaffed, but I, I think anybody's understaffed for the most part. <laughs> I just, I try to, that is one of the things I tried to enforce at Deloitte when I was consulting was don't undervalue the transfer pricing function in the team because it's hugely impactful and huge dollars and don't, don't shortchange it. Of course. Um, but, you know, and, and that wasn't just, you know, because of my own best interest, it was just a fact that I'd, I'd seen it. Um, I had a, one client when I was in Deloitte that was was bigger than, than Striker or whatever in 3M, and they did not have a single dedicated person to transfer pricing. One or two people within their tax department tried to handle it, and it was, it was a disaster. Yeah, we, we hear that a lot of, of folks, you know, not being designated as transfer pricing professionals. It's, you know, on one of the many hats they wear. And we, 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 it's something we hear about a lot. Does your transfer pricing department get to work at all with your new business team? So you get a sense of what your transfer pricing perspective is before you actually launch new endeavors? Unfortunately, not uncommon attacks. They're kind of the last ones to the table. We hear that all the time. Yeah, and we try to change that. We try and preach that. And so, you know, you end up being more reactive than proactive. Right. Yeah, you work to change that. You try and build those relationships. I think you're able to. I think my colleague, Stanley, uh, the other transfer person, has done a very good job of that here. We We probably are brought to the table at the beginning more often than not. But I don't think that's that's the norm. Okay. But that's what. But but building those relationships and educating others within the organization, people in the business development, you know, commercial, R and D, whomever, to build and, and try and get plugged in is a worthwhile investment and endeavor. Yeah. Because once you are, things work out better. But it, it's an investment, and it's hard to do. But sure. It, because especially the commercial folks, because it's their job to go out and sell, sell, sell. You know, right. let's this market. Right. And, and really don't think about the back end of it much. Right. So to help educate them, yeah, that's the goal. Tough endeavor, but it is worth the investment to right. accomplish it. Indeed. Uh, I'm going to interrupt really quickly with our first CPE code word, and that code word is Pacific, as in many of our clients have entities on the other side of the Pacific. Doug, scrutiny has increased considerably over the last few years. How has KCI or your tax department adjusted to this? Something I touched upon earlier is you are engaging more and more third parties to assume with that. You simply can't handle all the demands and requests and then do your regular day job. So by default, most companies aren't, you know, aren't going to bring on additional headcount. Um, they might do it temporarily, but they, the, the answer has been to engage the third parties more and use consultants more, um, which is, you know, was great when I was at Deloitte, but, you know, it, it is. It, it's how we, 
how we adjusted to it or how we tried to handle it because you can't get your regular day-to-day stuff done when you're dealing with some of this additional scrutiny that, you know, is a one-off thing, an IP transfer or something like that. That's been, that's been the response that I've seen, and that's, that's our mm-hmm. response. And the key to that is just managing those engagements well and, and you know, really, really shopping and trying to be efficient. Mm-hmm. And uh, just in speaking of Deloitte there, you at Deloitte, you helped with forensic audits. What was that like and what kinds of things did you observe about multinational companies in terms of transfer pricing? They had poor or missing documentation. Mm-hmm. With that, I, I very rarely did we have a client where we go, man, they have everything. They're on top of their documentation. It's proper. It's, it's um, compelling. It just was very, very lacking or missing completely. Mm. That was that was the biggest. You keep your documentation as your best friend. It, it, it gives you your first opportunity to tell your story when you hand it to an auditor. And so to have a poor story or an incomplete story or a misleading story, really that just is going to open up questions. So for me, the TP documentation is such an essential thing. I know, you know it's just seen as compliance, but it's your best friend going into an audit. Doug, I was just wondering, what were some of the details that you found were always missing in transfer pricing documentation? Or was it just inconsistencies? Uh, you know what it was a lot of time was benchmarks were not very good. Okay. Or benchmarks were stale. And that's one of the things oh, we did. Great. We really dug into the benchmarks. Are these really comparable companies? Okay. You know, who did the search? How is, oh, that's a five-year-old search? And five-year-old financial results? No, you know, the tax authority is going to object to that. You need to at least, you know, best practice, do a fresh search every three, four years. But every year, you should at least update the financials for your comparable companies. You don't have to have new comparable companies every year, but you should at least yearly update the financials for them, and every three, four, five years, do a complete fresh search. That's... I was surprised by the number of, of clients who were using five, six, seven-year-old benchmarks. Wow. Did you also find that they weren't using local benchmarks where local benchmarks were required? Yeah, yeah. Saw some of that, but really, I, to me, I throw that out. I know that jurisdictions will insist. Some try to insist, like France is a good one, Australia. They want just local. They just want local companies, right? They want local comps. Well, I'm sorry, but really what's important is the functional comparison, the functionality, profit, risks, assets, and region. So to me, you know, those things I saw were, were how they tested, the tested party results. Was it a three-year, one year of actuals versus three years of your comparable results, which is probably the most common that's, you know, pretty much a global, were they doing that? Or if it was the U.S., were they doing a three-year to three-year? Or if it was Canada, a year to year using the full range, Australia, one to five-year. Were they try, Were they applying the right approach based on that jurisdiction? And so a lot of times they weren't. But, you know, that's, that's where we kind of had to point them in the right direction. And have you been through any transfer pricing audit experiences? Yeah, absolutely. In a number of years, it, you know, I couldn't avoid it. I've always been lucky, though. I will say this: 
wherever I've been, there has been a dedicated audit team. And so who acts as the, the actual contact with, with the audit team? And I, my role has most often, often been to supply requested items, documentation, analyses. A lot of the actual interaction, in my experience, has been done by a point team within you know, that organization, and you just kind of were there to help as you could, explain things, advise on the transfer pricing issues. So it's been that for the most part. You know, I haven't been to many, haven't had the opportunity, and I do look at the opportunity to do a lot of MAP or competent authority. I've had some exposure to those. I know what they are. But that's been very limited in my experience. So they're usually handled by specialized people within the firm. You know, my role has been much more of a support. I've had to, you know, do things like actually sit down with the IRS in one example and walk him through a management cost-sharing allocation model to show where the costs, how they're accumulated, where they're accumulated, and just walk them through. And by that time, their eyes are usually glazed over and there are no questions, so long as you have, so long as you have a reasonable approach is what I've found in kind of that area. So, yes, a lot of it, a lot of experience, and it's a real burden and drain on time and resources. For sure. And I know you talked a little bit about who's on that team, but if you could kind of describe in detail what, you know, what did these audit teams look like? They were made up of other attorneys and outside firm life. But internally, it was just somebody who had a lot of audit experience in their background within tax, different areas of tax that kind of were on those teams. And then if it became a transfer pricing issue within that audit, then we were pulled into it. Mm. Or, or, you know, if it was a state income tax or whatever, then they would go to that specialty and pull them into the audit. But it, it was people that were trained more to do it. I, I feel comfortable doing it. And like I said, it's just not been my role to be that point person so much. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University every Tuesday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai tpu. And what kinds of paperwork or reports did you have to prepare or produce? The documentation, right? And we have TP documentation, so you're always producing that. Producing, they'll, they'll want to see an analysis behind profitability. So maybe maybe you're showing them pieces of your profit monitoring tool, print it out in the PDF, try not to give them live Excel versions of things. Things like that, memos if you have it. I mean, I haven't been drilled too hard for things like emails and such. Mm. Now that, you know, it can get to that point. But I've fortunately been involved in my situations where we've had most of our our stuff together. And so there wasn't any problem showing them it was just whether it was a negotiation or anything. So many audits I found were just a negotiation. What 
will it take to make you go away? <laughs> you, 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 you propose a hundred, a ridiculous hundred million dollar transfer pricing adjustment, not warranted because you don't like a couple of our comps. And so you think we're over the range. Our, our argument is just as valid. And that's one of the reasons why I like transfer pricing is the gray area, that there is no right or wrong that you, it gives you the ability to craft your argument, be an advocate. So I'm not wrong. I'm not saying you're wrong, but you still, you've given me a hundred million dollar adjustment. What is it going to take? What, what right. is, you know, and, reasonableness. And part of that negotiation has to involve, you know, how costly this whole process is in terms of time, resources, or legal outside fees. Exactly. What have those costs been in your experience? Where do they range? The, the internal costs and time, it's tough to quantify, right? You just know you're working more, you're producing things that you shouldn't internally. But outside, if you if you have to go outside a third-party consultant law firm, hundreds of thousands, I've seen it, mm. you know, close to a million on a couple of items that were key subjects of audits. So, and, and maybe, you know, 100,000. So I, it's been all over the board. It just depends on the, the amount of the proposed adjustments and where, what you think your position is. Uh, there's no hard and fast rule, but I've seen it all over the board. So mm-hmm. uh, I just, in the internal part, you can't, it, that's difficult to quantify. You just know it's a strain and a burden. When you're working some extra hours and doing things, you're putting together stuff. So it's definitely a, a strain on, on resources and time and expenses. Mm. It's kind of a, a fact, very fact-specific thing. Mm. Any other big takeaways from the, the audit experience? A properly prepared audit defense file. In advance of an audit, you know, for example, if you have a substantial IP transfer from you know, one jurisdiction to the other, you better have, you better start a, an audit defense file right away and we actually where I've been we've actually engaged that services uh, services provider to do that to do a mock audit mm-hmm. so if it's there's really uh, a lot of stake and value and dollars it's worth that exercise to prepare and do a mock audit for example right a mock audit kind of like preparing for battle really almost yeah, almost like is. troop it's exercises like, it, it, it is it's like preparing for court you you you, when you prepare for court, you prepare the other party's case so right. that you then know how to prepare your case. And there should be yeah. no surprises, at least throughout that process. There should be. Yeah, there really should be none. I mean, if you're, if you're, if who you're engaged with or working with is, is you know, effective and decent, they, there really should be no surprises. You should have an answer, like it or not. But I think that's also part of it is you, you come in with an answer. You know that you don't fumble and stumble and bumble around. Oh, I don't know. If it's not a good answer, you prepare that answer and how best to, you know, mitigate it. Right, right. So those are my biggest takeaways. But I, I mean, any practicing lawyer, that's, that's pretty common. So, <laughs> you know, it's just applying those principles. It's of not course. really a courtroom, but it is still adversarial. And I'm going to interrupt with our second CPE code word, and that word is WELP, as in WELP, this transfer pricing transaction may not work out after all. Doug, you've had a lot of interesting tax experience in multinational companies. What experience kept you up at nights the most? I'd like to say uh, nothing. Um, I try not to, but but it's inevitable. You know, it has to do with probably are my... Is my profitability really in line? Is it going to be challenged in the bigger jurisdictions? It's, it's, it's really simple. It's not, 
you know, more complicated now. If I have a transaction, particular transaction that I'm worried about, then it'll be, you know, that. But mostly it's just the constant profitability challenge because it is just going to be challenged because it's nothing but a range. So nothing, nothing fancy. I, I don't take a lot of my work home with me. And so, but that, that would be the thing that I, I know we're going to get an audit. Or I know this is going to be challenged because I know we're pushing the, the limits here. We may be, we may be pushing the upper boundaries for one reason or the lower boundaries for a particular reason. And then it's just, am I going to be able to justify that satisfactorily? And if you were going to give advice to a tax executive at another multinational about transfer pricing, what would it be? Don't go on the cheap um, with, your, with your transfer pricing policies, teams, build it out, it's huge value, huge dollars at stake, don't skimp on it. And then part B, make sure you have your documentation. It's a worthwhile exercise. Even if you can't do it in-house, you outsource it, you, you do your documentation because that that sets you up poorly from, from the outside if you don't. So very simple advice and the, the, rest of, the rest of it will work itself out. What are your biggest concerns about the immediate future? So, so yeah, I think the one thing that concerns me and, and it's talked about some, and in fact, when I attended uh, the cross border seminar in, in Scottsdale that we, we met at, one of the speakers talked about this global apportionment, the argument or people, you know, the, to implement a global apportionment type of regime for, for profitability and determining into the level of profitability. To me, you know, that argument is specious by that same token, the erosion of the, of the arm's length standard. The arm's length standard is, is one of the reasons why, is one reason why I, I enjoy TPE is, that, as I mentioned, it's not a black and white thing. It gives you the ability to, to craft an argument, to use your imagination all of that. That being said, I, I'm not even, I, I don't even necessarily, I'm of the opinion, and I don't hear this a lot, so I must be an extremist. I'm of the opinion that multinational companies should be allowed to set their transfer pricing to whatever way it benefits them, even if it means a loss in another country. Now, I say that because it's the free market. If that country wants to raise more tax dollars, incentivize me there to bring more business there. I'll put a profitable entity there. I'll make up for it in volume in the tax rate differences. You know, you look at an Ireland or, or Netherlands, you know, they have incentivized people to, multinationals to put operations there, R&D and principles where there's a lot of profitability. I just simply, think that a multinational has the right to do that, to set a chance of prices, however it benefits them, and that should be the reaction of the jurisdiction. That being said, that isn't going to happen, and so the, trans, the arm's leg standard is the best possible approach. I, 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 you know, given the absence of that complete free market and ability to do that, the arm's leg standard is, is the best solution or best measuring stick, if you will. And so I, I, I hate to see that go away so long yeah. as there's going to be this artificial regime. But like I said, I'm probably alone on that thinking. I just think that I should have the ability to set my transfer prices to, to whatever. And if that company is not making money, 
they, the, the jurisdiction still earns money. They have employees that work there. I'm just saying it incentivized me to bring more profit there. Right. And, it, and I will. Your other option in that regard doesn't sound anything necessarily closer to a free market option in, in terms of like formulary apportionment. Fiona, just remind us here, what is formulary apportionment? Sure, Matt, but I'm starting to think you don't listen to my show with all these no-brainers. Formulary apportionment is an alternative tax system whereby multinational companies would allocate worldwide income across countries using a formula based on some combination of its sales, assets, and payroll in each jurisdiction. You take away that ability to have some flexibility with your profitability. Hmm. If you go to formulary apportionment, you know, it's a number. At least with the arm's length standard, you have some ability to work and can craft some like I said, some, some different profitability scenarios as, as, it, as it benefits you, the tax consequences do. Not that it's a tax planning tool, because we don't, you know, we don't right. do that. But it is, it, the arm's length standard, standard does give you the ability to, as a lever, to monitor or adjust some profitability. Indeed. Take that away and put in formulary apportionment, that goes away. So those are my choices. Clearly, I prefer the uh, arm standard. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. And that just about wraps up the hardcore transfer pricing questions. We still have just a little bit more time for my favorite part of the show, what we want to know, where we ask a transfer pricing expert. That's you today, Doug. A rapid fire round of thought provoking questions. Are you ready is question one. Absolutely. <laughs> what is the dream job you'd love to try? Believe it or not, charter boat captain in the Caribbean. <laughs> I'm all about boats, sailboats, grew up on lakes, had boats. That would be my dream job. What is your biggest everyday challenge? You know, to me, it's, it's uh, answering and uh, responding to emails and calls timely because there are so many of them. And to me, timely is the important part of it. My own policy of, and I got this actually working from Deloitte with, with my boss there, respond to any emails, for example, within 48 hours, yeah. if at all possible. If nothing else, just an acknowledgement, I've got your email. I'm working on it. I'll get back to you because, because that's my biggest pet peeve is people not responding timely or responding at all. Even if they'll just acknowledge, I got your email. I don't know the answer. Give me a week. Yeah. Or something like that. And then I know message read, understood. And then I have some sort of expectation because uh, I'm, I'm yeah. not uptight about, I'm not uptight about a lot of things at all. Very, very flexible. Probably more than most attorneys. <laughs> and, and, you know, tax people, 
but that is that is my one pet peeve. That is the one thing that yeah. I really, really, I believe in. That open, open communication. Right. Because that was actually my next question, your biggest professional pet peeve. It's never a waste of time to just write back, I received this, you know, this is where it's at, you know, or any kind of confirmation is never a wasted email. But in terms of transfer pricing, what mistakes do you think multinational companies make again and again? It goes back to documentation, poor missing documentation. That that was the key takeaway for me. Mm -hmm. It just, it made them vulnerable. It just, like I said, it opens the door. If you can keep the door from being open in the first place, tell your story, be support, support your position. It goes a long way. And it's, it's really a simple, simple thing. Now, mm-hmm. of course, if you have results that aren't good, you have to be able to explain those and such. But then you know where your weaknesses are. If you, if you understand that and know you have to document it, it also, you know, helps you prepare that, craft that argument. So to me, um, I know that's been a common thing, but, uh, documentation is, is, is so so important. I'm I'm, I'm a writer. Um, I'm a wordsmith. So documentation to me is not just a rote exercise or just a compliant exercise. I enjoy writing. Enjoy telling the story. And so maybe that's also why I harp on it. It's it's an area that I enjoy doing because it's writing. Right. And that's something I'm very good at and, and enjoy reading and writing. Right, right. I, I don't think you'd be the only storyteller in this discipline by far, but people describe success in different ways. What is your definition? Professionally, it's not dreading coming to work every day. I think more people, if that is the case with more people than would admit it. I, transfer pricing is so interesting to me. It has so many disciplines. It can never be boring. I'm an information junkie, so it helps you know, that. It's tax or tax consequences. It's legal. It's business operations. It's economics, supply chain. So many things that it's interesting and fascinating that I don't get bored with it. And so, to me, I you know I don't dread doing it and coming to work every day. I've found my professional niche. I'm very happy to say, but I, I think so many people haven't. And to me, that is professional success right out right out of the gate. For sure. Still a 12-hour day, but it seems to pass a little quicker when I'm doing something like this. Yeah. Thank you for your time, Doug Darling. Sorry, I just had to sing your whole name one more time. This was an incredibly interesting talk. Of course, we will have more interesting transfer pricing discussions, and you shouldn't miss a single one. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Spotify, and we'll give you the scoop on transfer pricing every week. Be sure to check out our sister podcast, The Fiona Show, hot off the press as well. There, you'll find the latest and greatest transfer pricing headlines. This podcast was edited, engineered, and hosted by yours truly, Matthew DeMello, Mary Lynn Mitchum-Strom, our executive producer, writes our scripts. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll be back with more hot transfer pricing topics next week. Stay tuned.